Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before I start, I know, I know, this has almost nothing to do with American history. Listen, I need an excuse to narrate more Edgar Allan Poe, okay? Sue me. Wait, don't, don't do that. Anyway, this is an absolute classic and the perfect story to get you in the mood for spooky season. I hope you all enjoy it as much as I do, and you get a little folklore. Maybe a tease of what's coming to HAH next season. That's right. Haunted American history goes Hawaiian. Wait. No. That's not right. Abroad. H-A-H goes abroad. Let's see what this world has to offer before we return to the States. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me on a journey through America's dark and haunted past and as well as elsewhere in the world as we explore the ghost stories and folklore that have been passed down for generations. What scares you? Let's find out. I am Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. In Norway, 60% of its population was killed within months by the Black Death. 
which ravaged humanity in the 13th century. Those who told the stories depicted the plague as something terrifying. A red or blue-dressed woman with broomsticks and rakes chasing people down village streets, demanding charity for her child, the deadly pestilence. Her name was Pesta. Pesta is the Norwegian word for the pandemic itself. Pesta would spare some of your people if you came upon her with her rake. By the time Pesta had finished sweeping with her broomstick, there was no point in running, since no one would be alive. Pesta destroyed entire communities. People died in their beds and on the paths through the landscape. Children were left orphaned and alone. Death was said to take no more than three days. It was so fast-moving that people often couldn't free their livestock from their stables or sheds. Without food and care, the animals soon died from thirst and hunger. The last man, woman, and domestic animal had long since disappeared, and everything was still. As the years passed by, Mother Nature slowly reclaimed the buildings and fields that people had labored and struggled for. The ferryman took Pesta across a lake one day when she came upon him. At first, the man didn't recognize her because she wore a blue skirt. After a while, he realized who was on the boat with him. He pleaded with her to spare his life. If she did, he would let her good deeds serve as a payment for the trip. Taking a large book from her lap, Pesta answered quietly, I cannot spare your life, but I can make your death easier. As he returned home, the man was as tired as he'd ever been. He stumbled to his bed, and moments later, he was gone. Jostedal Valley lies deep in the mountains of western Norway, in the region of Song. The rich and powerful fled to this remote valley as Pesta and her broomstick approached the region. Following their safety and settlement, no one else was allowed to cross the valley's perimeter. At the entrance of the valley, a huge rock known as the Leatherstone was the only way they could communicate with the outside world. The refugees at Jostedal tried to keep Pesta out, but she found her way in. Except for one young girl, they all perished. Later, abandoned domestic animals from Jostedal appeared in the neighboring valley. They investigated, moving from house to house, but found no one alive. Not knowing what had happened, they set out to figure out what the cause of this was. While preparing to return home, they spotted the young girl. They called out to her, but she ran off into the forest and disappeared. As the people discussed what to do, they had agreed that saving her was their duty. It took a long time for them to find the young girl because she was scared and confused. They named her the Grouse of Jostidal because she reminded them of the mountain bird of the same name. After bringing the girl back to their own community, they treated her well. And as time went by, new people rediscovered the valley of Jostidal, seeking a new place to settle. As the grouse of Jostidal grew older, she found love in the valley of her childhood and married there. She stayed in Jostidal for the rest of her life and left behind a large and respected family line. Fast forward a hundred years after the Black Death, a bear hunter had lost his way near a vast forest in a different part of Norway. Trying desperately to find any sign of a fellow human, 
He searched and searched and looked on the horizon for perhaps smoke from a fire, but he didn't see anything. At the end of the day, he had given up on finding a warm place to stay. As the hunter approached the edge of the forest, he saw a few buildings almost hidden, surrounded by trees that were over a hundred years old. The hunter reluctantly approached this haunted place. A thick layer of dust covered everything in the main cottage, including a rusty pot by the fireplace, rotting yarn on the benches, and a bow and arrow that still hung on the wall. A bed in the corner screamed at him as he walked over to it. It was covered in old bones and told him what had happened all those years ago. Hesta had come with her broomstick, and the world had stopped. As he walked through all the other buildings on the old farm, everything was just as it had been before. Immediately, the man decided to claim what he found and begin his new life thick in this mysterious forest. And after gathering up and burying all the old bones, the old place came back to life. Hey, folks. You guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part? is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal. The retinas and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially the face of the victim were the pest band 
which shut him out from the aid and the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of this disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. The wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or the frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve. Or to think, the prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatori, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, and there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged mostly furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first let me tell of the rooms of which it held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites from a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slid back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here, the case was very different. It might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every 20 or 30 yards. At each turn, a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass color varied in accordance to the prevailing hue of decorations in the chamber into which it opened. At the eastern extremity was hung the example in blue. A vivid blue was the windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were its casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, and the fifth with white, and the sixth with violet. The seventh arrangement was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon the carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in one of the seven apartments there were any lamp or candelabrum. Amid the profusion of gold ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or dependent from the roof, 
There was no light of any kind entering from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite to each window a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illuminated the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight was streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes, was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenance of those who entered, that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face, the hour was to be stricken. There came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of the hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound, and thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company, and while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows, each to the other, that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and to see and to touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed, in great part, the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great feat, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm. Much of what has been seen since in Hernani, there were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these, the dreams, withered in and about, taking you from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still, 
All is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand. But the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant. And a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking you from the many tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appeals. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal, more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the revel went whirling on, until at length there commenced the sound of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quiet, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened. Perhaps that more of the thought crept, with more of the time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who had reveled. And thus too it happened. Perhaps that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, that there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur, expressive of disapprobation and surprise. Then... Finally, of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supported that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had outherited Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company indeed seem now deeply to feel that in the costume and the bearing of the stranger neither wit nor properly existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to toe in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have made it difficult in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which with a slow and solemn movement, as if it were more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed, in the first moment with a strong shudder of either terror or distaste, but 
In the next, his brow reddened with rage. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him. Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who, at the moment, was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe in which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who had put forth his hand to seize him, so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person. And while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centuries of rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber, to the purple, through the purple, to the green, through the green, to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with the rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which, instantly afterwards, fell a prostrate in death, Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and the darkness and decay of the Red Death held illimitable dominion over all. <laughs>